All right. Well, this is uh, session seven. I want to thank uh, Jeremy uh, for letting me come. Jeremy is such a just. I'm just so impressed with your church and with your ministry and uh, the, the 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 people that we've met. We wish we could just stay permanently, you know, and just move up here and be a part of this uh, this church. The worship was wonderful this morning. Just really prepared our hearts. And uh, uh, you know, I've known Jeremy for a long time. As he mentioned, Friday night we. Uh, reconnected sort of uh, this past fall at a conference we were both uh, attending. But I first, actually, I first met Jeremy in a bar. That's true, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, that's a true story. I, I had to call him a cab. No, um, I, uh, <laughs> no, he was uh, pastoring uh, at a previous church, and uh, they were renting, I guess, a, a bar. And it's the only time in my 32 years of ministry that I've preached right beneath a Bud Light uh, light, you know, and I was really had mixed emotions about it, but, uh, but no, uh, it's just neat to see what the Lord's done in Jeremy and his sweet family's uh, life, and I know you guys are blessed, and I, I have the privilege of meeting with him uh, fairly regularly. Uh, we do some Zoom calls and just sort of iron sharpens iron time uh, together, and uh, it's, it's interesting uh, you know, one of the things I love about Jeremy is he is a, a student of the Word, a man of the Word, and we, he, uh, he challenges me as we talk about different uh, passages of Scripture and theological topics. Uh, he's always digging deeper into the Word, and I uh, find myself more than, more than usual having to say, you know, let me take a look at that. I'm not, I'm not really sure. So that really impresses me. Not every pastor is like that. I hope you know how blessed you are. Many pastors kind of parrot what other commentators and theologians are saying, and, uh, but our task is to be uh, uh, people of the, of the Word, and so uh, I appreciate that about you and really admire that. Uh, so we are wrapping up this uh, conference with uh, uh, kind of the solution, and you know, we have talked a lot about the manifestations of the spirit of the Antichrist and the spirit of deception in particular. We've talked a lot about, uh, as Jeremy said, some negative things, negative just because they're not pleasant. Uh, but just because they're not pleasant doesn't mean they're not true. And uh, we need to be prepared. We need to be aware of them. We need to see uh, where this world is headed from the biblical perspective. So we, we've talked about the Luciferian conspiracy and how that's thoroughly biblical and how Satan has been trying hard to overcome God and, and claim this world as his own and usher in a satanically inspired one world system religiously, politically, economically, and, and, and so forth. So, um, but we also need to have some solutions. And so I want to close out the conference by essentially uh, summarizing chapter 11 in the book, uh, which is the next to the last chapter, on how to avoid uh, deception. And for that, I want to invite you to turn to uh, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And while you're turning there, let me just sort of review what we've talked about and what the premise of the book is. First John tells us that the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work in the world. Uh, even though one Antichrist, capital A, is coming, and he will take the helm of the one world system uh, after the rapture, at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, that final seven-year period when uh, we see the wrath of God being poured out on the earth, uh, leading up to the return of Christ to establish the uh, godly one world system, the final kingdom age when Christ himself takes the throne and rules with a rod of iron and perfect peace and justice. Uh, so one Antichrist is coming, capital A, but many Antichrists have come. 
And Paul tells us the mystery of lawlessness is already at work in this present uh, church age. We know that the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith. And what are they going to be doing? They're going to be giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And so this is all part of God's plan of the ages. Uh, we know that perilous times will come. Uh, we know that when the Antichrist takes the helm, he's going to be working according to the power of Satan, using all power, signs, lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception, he's going to try to deceive the world. And he will deceive many, as he's already doing. Uh, in 2 Timothy 3.13, Paul warns that evil men and impostors are growing worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So there is a conspiracy, no question. Ever since Satan got kicked out of heaven, he's been conspiring with one-third of the angels that fell with him and human agents working together to try to overcome God and take over this world. It's a spiritual battle, ultimately, as Paul reminds us. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood, even though part of the co-conspirators have flesh and blood, and we've talked a lot about that aspect of the conspiracy this weekend. But ultimately, it's a battle against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age, and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. But one thing about Satan is that, of course, he's not omniscient, he's not omnipotent, he's not omnipresent, and so uh, he, he's not very creative. In fact, as we've talked a lot about over the last couple of days, Satan is trying in every aspect to be like God. He wants to be God, and God, of course, is the ultimate creator he, he's eternal. There never was a time when God didn't exist, never will be a time when God doesn't exist. He spoke the world into creation. He created itself, time, space, and matter. Remember Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, that's time. God created the heavens, that's space, and the earth, that's matter. So God created time, space, and matter. He is the creator, capital C, something Satan cannot do, though he and his Luciferian co-conspirators have been trying hard to do that. And so he's desperately trying to be like God and be a creator, but in reality, he's not very creative. So he's using the same old tired techniques today that he's used for 6,000 years and that he used uh, with Adam and Eve in the garden. So I call this the anatomy of deception. And if we can draw some principles from the way in which uh, Satan interacted with Adam and Eve at the fall we ought to be able to recognize his same M.O. today, 6,000 years later, and, and maybe have a better chance at seeing it coming. So it's my contention that all deception really follows this basic pattern. So let's pick it up in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. That word cunning is an interesting word in uh, Hebrew. It's the word ahrum. It's used 11 times in the Old Testament, and it's not always used in a negative sense. It's, it can be used in a positive sense of shrewdness, almost like prud being prudent. Uh, in fact, Proverbs uses it that way, but it's used in Genesis uh, 3.1 to describe an evil purpose. The serpent was, was cunning, and really Genesis 3.1 is connected in the original Hebrew back to the end of chapter 2. Uh, in verse 25, I think it is, where we see kind of a Hebrew word play. Because we're told in chapter 2 that Adam and Eve were naked, which is arumim, and now we're told that the serpent is arum. He's more crafty than all. Adam and Eve's nakedness represented the fact that they were innocent, oblivious 
to evil, fellowshipping with God, their creator, blind to where the traps might lay. But Satan would use, would and did use his craftiness to take advantage of their ignorance. And the tempter, of course, is Satan. We know this from Revelation chapter 12. It's one of the amazing examples of hundreds of examples of the incredible divinely inspired continuity of Scripture. So here you have the book of Genesis written by Moses roughly 1446 B.C. in Hebrew, and he's talking about the serpent, and yet the book of Genesis never mentions the word devil or Satan. But we fast forward 1,500 years uh, to the Isle of Patmos and the Apostle John and the Greek language in the mid-90s A.D., and we see indeed that the serpent of old is the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He is the great uh, deceiver. So the serpent was, was crafty. You know, God had told Adam and Eve when he created them and in the garden with the highest pinnacle of creation, his mankind made in his own image, um, the crown jewel being Eve creating, created in God's image. Adam was incomplete completely until Eve came along. It's, it's really interesting if you read in Hebrew, and the, the original children of Israel in the wilderness, as they received these writings of Moses, would have, would have really, this would have jumped off the page at them as they saw it. But time and again, as God reveals the creation account to Moses, he says, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. Then you get to the creation of Adam, and it says, and it was not good. <laughs> and, uh, and so Adam is a reminder to us men, uh, Eve was not an afterthought. Eve was not something that God gave Adam because Adam requested it. God's plan all along was to create Eve. Adam was incomplete until Eve was created. And then, of course, uh, Eve was created, and God saw that everything he had created was very, very good. And so Eve, Adam and Eve were created, and God put them in the garden, and he loved them so much he warned them. Of course, he created us with free choice. We weren't robots that had no choice uh, in the matter. You know, a lot of people today, some bad teaching out there. I know Jeremy's probably talked about this uh, uh, and pointing it out to you, but a lot of people, often called Calvinists, are out there teaching that you don't really have a choice in the matter. You're either chosen or not. Um, by the way, what do you call a Calvinist grocery store? Have you heard this one? The pick and save. So, um, but, um, but that's not the, the story. That's not the story the Bible tells. The Bible tells the story of God created man with free will. And, uh, and, and he said, there's one tree that you don't want to eat of. He didn't do that as some kind of a sick dangling of a carrot or test. He did it because he loved us. And he said, I love you so much, I don't want you to be harmed, and I don't want you to die, so don't eat from that tree. But, of course, you know the rest of the story. We ate from the tree, and then God right then and there could have said, you know, I warned you, too bad, so sad, see you in hell. And God would have been perfectly just to do that. As a matter of fact, you know, some people retell this story, and it's as if they think, well, I, you know, God, when we ate the, the apple, the proverbial apple, uh, don't email me if you're watching this online, I know it wasn't an apple, but uh, uh, when we ate the apple, you know, they, they think maybe God just sort of winked and nodded at sin and said, oh, that's all right, no big deal, people make mistakes, that thing I said about death, forget it, I didn't really mean it, don't worry about it, you're really a good person, just forget it. But, you know, if God had said that, it would have proved right there at the beginning that God was unfaithful, untrustworthy, fickle, and not God. So God is God, and he means what he says, and you can take it to the bank. 
And so we sinned and we suffer the consequences for that sin. But, you know, God is not only holy and just and righteous, he's also gracious and loving and merciful. So he immediately put in place a plan to redeem us from the predicament we got ourselves into because of his great love for us. And that plan involves sending his eternal son, Jesus Christ, to the earth to put on human flesh, take our sins upon him at the cross, as we just uh, remembered here with the observance of the Lord's Supper, and pay our penalty, your penalty, your penalty, my penalty for sin. He, he paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we could never pay. We simply can't be good enough to satisfy the righteous demands of a holy God. But Jesus, perfectly righteous and sinless, took our sins upon him, died, rose again, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and then offers freely to all who will accept it the gift of eternal life. The Bible verse that we read a moment ago, John 1, 12, to as many as received him, that is, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become a child of God. So God is just, but he is merciful. He provided the redemption. And anyone who in simple childlike faith trusts in Jesus Christ and him alone for eternal life can be saved. Uh, but Adam and Eve found themselves in uh, quite a predicament. But let's go back and take a look at what really was going on as they were confronted with this temptation, this choice. The fact that Satan manifested as a snake suggests that temptation comes in disguise, usually quite unexpectedly, and it's interesting that it often comes from a subordinate, someone over whom God had already said, you have dominion. Um, also, in the ancient Near East, we know in the pagan world, the serpent was worshipped by a lot of false religions. Their symbol of life was a serpent. God's word is reminding us that a pagan's symbol of life is, in fact, the cause of death. And so that's a great reminder as we think about the great last day's deception and this gathering cloud of deception that we see all around us in the Luciferian conspiracy, that things are seldom as they appear. Uh, divinity is not achieved by following pagan beliefs, even though that was Satan's promise, as we shall see in verse 5. Uh, his way is the way of death, not life. God, the creator, brings life, not death. John tells us all things were made through him, and without him uh, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In First John, he says, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So because of Adam and Eve's sin, we're born dead in our trespasses and sin. Paul says in Romans 5.12, Wherefore by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. It's in the blood. So you, you, don't, sin be, you don't become a sinner when you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. You're born a sinner born dead in your trespasses and sin, Ephesians 2, 1 says. And so uh, if you don't receive the second birth by trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation, then you're going to face a second death. Now, if you're born once, you die twice. But if you're born twice, as Jesus told Nicodemus, born from above, experience the heavenly birth by trusting in Jesus Christ and becoming a child of God, like we read in John 1, 12, then you only have to die once physically. But those who never receive the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life will face a second death that Revelation talks about. So as we look more closely at Genesis 5, uh, 3, five core components of de deception emerge. I call this Satan's battle plan. It's the anatomy of deception, if you will. The origin of deception can be traced all the way back to Satan's approach 
to God's Word in the garden. The first step is to question truth, to question truth. We read again, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Has God indeed said? Question truth. Can we really trust God's word? Can we really trust anything? That's essentially what Satan was doing, planting those seeds of doubt. It's at the heart of Pilate's question to Jesus some 4,000 years later when he said, what is truth? What is truth? So question truth. Satan questioned God's word. And the the premise here underlying his plan is that God's word, which today is embodied in the inspired written word of God, is questionable. He planted a seed of doubt in Eve, and deception always begins with a seed of doubt. But then he moved on to misrepresenting the truth. Misrepresenting the truth. In other words, truth is a matter of opinion. Look at what he says. You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, is that really what God said? (laughs) Hardly. God said just the opposite. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat but one. But one. And Eve, influenced by Satan's misrepresentation, or spin, as we like to call it today, then turned around and misrepresented God's word herself. We read in verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. Now, did God say that? No. So Eve likewise misrepresented God's word, and Satan did not object because he loves it. He's just, she's playing right into his hand. She's following his lead question truth, then he's misrepresenting the truth. But no, that's not at all what God said. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we read on, uh, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. And notice that last phrase, lest you die. So here we see, there's so much truth, so much theology in this encounter we see Eve downplaying the consequence. You know, lest you die, instead of you shall surely die. It's as if she's saying, you know, we might die if we eat it. But that's not at all what God said. God said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So question truth, misrepresent truth, and downplay the consequences and essentially, this second step in the pathway to deception is, a, is suggesting that truth is a matter of opinion. Uh, you know, misrepresent truth, make it broader, make it less precise, make it open to interpretation and subject to opinion. The quest for deception always starts by questioning and misrepresenting truth. It's a moving target able to be manipulated and spun. It's a matter of opinion. But then notice what comes next. Question truth, misrepresent truth, 
and then directly contradict truth. See, it's the third step that we jump to immediately when we conceptualize deception and lying because that's where the lie, in essence, lands. But don't overlook those first two preparatory steps in the anatomy of deception. It starts with questioning truth, has God indeed said, misrepresenting truth, spinning it, adding content that wasn't there, reinterpreting it. But then you get to the direct contradiction. Uh, The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. So Satan blatantly negated the penalty of death that God had given. Satan, Jesus says, is a liar from the beginning. And this is his one lie, if you want to boil it all down. You can sin and get away with it. But death is the penalty for sin. Jesus said, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. We've talked a lot this weekend about how he loves death. But he does not stand in the truth, Jesus said, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. In the context here, Jesus is speaking to the scribes and Pharisees after the woman caught in adultery. A little bit earlier, he had said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free in the same context. The more you know the truth, the more easily you will recognize a lie. See, John said in his epistle, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. In Greek, the word planao is translated deceive. It's used 39 times in the Greek New Testament. And it uh, means to lead astray, to cause, to wander. Uh, it's also a similar word that's used nine times is pseudos, from which we get pseudo. Uh, it means to lie. Uh, it's a lie, a falsehood, deceit. Um, you know, pseudo, it, it, it's, uh, it's like in, in English we would say pseudoscience is not real science. It's false science. That's the etymology of that word. But, you know, in English... The word has kind of taken on a more benign meaning, similar to sort of incorrect or a mistake. But pseudos in Greek speaks to intentional falsehood, to that planao idea. It's not something that's merely inaccurate. You know, you can be inaccurate and not deceptive, right? But this is an inaccuracy with the intent to deceive. So if we were more accurate, pseudoscience, as it were, is actually deceitful science, (laughs) And by the way, if you read chapter 9 in the book, you'll find that's exactly what the so-called science is today. So directly contradict truth. Basically, Satan suggested or stated explicitly that death and judgment are an illusion. Now, Eve should have immediately corrected Satan when he contradicted the truth. Instead, she sat passively by. She agreed with this falsehood when she should have disagreed to agree. You know, we hear that phrase all the time, we'll just have to agree to disagree. I think what we need are more people with the courage to disagree to agree. That's what we need. We don't need people agreeing to disagree. 
God's word certainly does not suggest that death and judgment are an illusion the way Satan suggested they are. God's word says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For those who fail to receive the free gift of eternal life, you better believe there's judgment. But if you've placed your faith in him, you've passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. You've passed from being a child of wrath to a child of God, as we read in John 1, 12. You've, by faith, become a child of God. Uh, but you better believe there's a consequence for those who haven't received the free gift. Jesus said in Luke 12, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. You don't often hear sermons from that lovely teaching of our Lord Jesus these days in the age of the kinder, softer, gentler Jesus. <laughs> but that's exactly who Jesus, who is God, said. That's what, it's exactly what he said. And that really angers Satan because he may kill the body, but he can't do anything with eternity. In fact, he himself is going to be tormented day and night forever and ever according to God's word as are the Antichrist and the false prophet. And we read about this in Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, and the one who sat on it is Christ, not Satan. And from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, for there was no found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. See, those who don't receive the imputed righteousness of Christ, those who don't receive Christ's righteousness by faith so that the blood of Christ covers their sin, are left with only one recourse when it, stands, when it comes to judgment day, and that is to stand before the great white throne, hoping that they've accumulated and amassed enough good works to satisfy a holy God. And so they can bring truckload after truckload of good works. But the problem is God doesn't grade on the curve. See, eternal life is not like an SAT score where as long as you're in the 99th percentile, you're probably going to get into college. <laughs> no, it's 100%. It's a zero-sum game. And so no amount of good works can measure up to God's standard of holiness. So we read, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's the second death. Remember, if you're born once, you're going to die twice. But if you're born twice, once physically and once from above, you only have to die once. And some people may not even die physically if the Lord comes back in our lifetime. And it's looking more and more like he will. Uh, but in, if the Lord tarries his coming, then believers only have to experience physical death, which is really just the golden key that unlocks the riches of eternity. The uh, Bible tells us that uh, the death of his saints is precious in the sight of the Lord. Uh, because we instantly, in a, in a split second, in one breath, pass from being in this sin-stricken world into the presence and arms of our Savior. And uh, Paul understood that. That's why in Philippians he talked about how, you know, to be here and remain with you is more needful, but boy, how I'd rather be with Jesus. How many of you would rather be with Jesus right now? Well, me too. But you know what? 
as appealing as that is, and as much as we long for that, and as much as we say Maranatha, God has a purpose for us here and now. And no matter how bad things get, our task is to stand strong, stand firm until the end, suffer persecution if that's what the Lord calls us to do, proclaim the gospel, share Christ with others, make a difference in this world, shine like stars in this perverse generation, as Paul said. So don't ever lose sight of our purpose. Don't ever lose sight of what we're here for. We have a job to do. And if we're not going to do it, nobody else will. You, know? you think the government's going to share Jesus with people? Or the governmental school system? Or the private sector? Or Walmart? No, it's you and me. That's God's divine design. It's the church. So yeah, we long to see Christ. We wish we didn't have to abide the suffering that we see coming down the pike. Um, you know, we've been so blessed in this great country of ours, we have not had to, kind, to suffer the kind of persecution and martyrdom that so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ have throughout the last 2,000 years of church history. But uh, that has led to a sort of entitlement attitude and an American exceptionalist mindset that says, uh, mistakenly, that our country can do no wrong. Uh, I think we're beginning to wake up to the reality that not only can they do wrong, they have been doing wrong. And uh, I think, if again, if the Lord tarries is coming, we're going to see more and more of that. And we've seen just a taste of it in the last couple of years when God-fearing brothers and sisters in Christ singing praises like we just sung this morning out in the open air on a church parking lot have been handcuffed, arrested, and hauled off to jail right here in this country. And that's just a little foretaste of what's to come if the Luciferians get their way and the rapture is delayed much longer. But we see that sin definitely has a consequence. One of the charts in our chart book are the end times judgments. And, of course, the judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment in the sense of heaven or hell or punishment. It's a time of reward where those who are faithful during this present earthly age will be rewarded with rewards at the Bema for kingdom service. But we absolutely see that the Antichrist and false prophet will be judged. Uh, we see Satan will be judged, and we see what we just read about there with the great white throne judgment. And yet Satan proclaimed uh, just the opposite. You will not surely die. That was a lie. That was the essence of the lie. But it was uh, built upon questioning truth, misrepresenting truth, and then directly contradicting truth. But the pathway to deception also includes a subtle shifting of the focus away from truth to deception. Shifting the focus from, uh, to, um, to perception, I mean, away from truth to perception, to perception. Listen to what he said, for God knows. So just those three words should sound an alarm because now Satan is claiming to climb inside the mind of Almighty God and tell us his motive. So, see, what he's basically saying is perception is more important than reality. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. But is that really what God said? Is that why God issued the warning to Adam and Eve? As we talked about, it was God's great love that led him to warn us about the dangers of sin. It wasn't God secretly keeping something back from us. Satan's the one for whom the principle applies. It's not about what it's about. With God, it's always about what it's about. God never plays tricks or mind games. He's never got hidden secret agendas. He's never toying with us or having, giving us some secret code that we have to de, you know, decipher. 
But Satan's the one who always has a secret agenda. So since that's his motive, he tries to project that onto God and say, well, here's why God really did that. He knows that, you know, if you eat this, you'll be like God. God was trying to keep something from you. So he's shifting the focus from truth to perception. Reality doesn't matter in Satan's world. Facts don't matter. It's an age of virtual reality where what matters is perception in Satan's world. It's style over substance. It's form over function. As it has been said, the makeup man is more important than the speechwriter. Right? Speculation rather than empirical evidence. See, people have little use for facts anymore. They're more concerned with presentation. So even the so-called news, or what I call the state-run media today, is all about bells and whistles and graphics and theme songs. I mean, there could be uh, you know, a tragic tornado you know, at 1 o'clock today here in central Wisconsin, and by 1.15 they'd have a theme song, a graphic, a motto, and all these other things that they're showing on all of the TV screens as they cover the news. Because it's all about perception, not reality. These days, it's extremely difficult to look beyond the presentation, beyond the style to the facts of the matter. Perception is more important than reality. And Satan kind of gets all, after he, he you know, completely blatantly lies, then he shifts the perception off of the substance quickly, lest you know, Eve suddenly have a crisis of conscience and realize, wait a minute, that's not what God said. And he starts talking about perception. You know, John Adams reminded us, facts are stubborn things, and whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passion, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. This tendency today to ignore facts in favor of perception manifests itself in a ton of context, but none more notably than this spirit of pretense. It's at play anytime someone questions the official government narrative about something. Oh, well, you're just a conspiracy theorist. You know, that's a logical fallacy, by the way. It's called ad hominem. And so rather than, you know, you could have all the evidence in the world and you, and you back up your claim and someone says, well, you're just a tinfoil hat nutcase. See, I won the argument because I made fun of you, <laughs> you know. And it's just not, not logical. But that's the world uh, that we uh, live in. But uh, Sir Arthur, Arthur Conan Doyle reminded us there's nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact when it's shrouded in perception. We simply must get back to focusing on the facts or we're just sitting ducks for deception. Don't let yourself get drawn in to arguing about perception. And I realize facts can be uncomfortable. We've talked about a lot of uncomfortable facts this weekend, depressing, inconvenient, but as Ben Shapiro put it bluntly, facts don't really care about your feelings. You know? We've got to keep the focus on truth, facts, not concern ourselves overly with perception. You know, I'm sure glad that uh, back in the first century, Joseph was less concerned with perception and more concerned with reality when he discovered his betrothed wife Mary was pregnant, aren't you? Making decisions based upon perception is dangerous. But then the final step in this core component of deception or the anatomy of deception is to invent entirely new meaning to truth. 
to make up meanings for words. Satan redefined the plain meaning of God's words to suit his own needs, but words have meaning. He implied words have no meaning. Again, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God did not say anything remotely resembling you will be like me. It wasn't even on the radar. I mean, you can't even try to connect any dots here. Satan utterly invents new meaning to God's word. When God said, if you eat, you will die, what he really meant is, you'll be like me. I mean, there's no connection there. It's classic deconstruction of language where you completely make up new uh, meaning. In these days of the gathering cloud of deception that are intensifying every day, it's as if Satan and his co-conspirators are seeking to take over the world most profoundly with their attack on language because they know they can't win the language battle. You know, God's word is true. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And so it's through the word of God that we're saved. You know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. So, so they have been really attacking a language for some time now. And I spent 12 years in higher education in the academic arena, and I've, I saw it. You know, this whole, you know, words have no uh, meaning. Um, but, you know, from a biblical worldview perspective, which came first, language or mankind? See, secular atheistic, you know, psychologists and anthropologists, they teach us that, of course, man evolved millions of years ago from a wet rock, eventually crawled out of the cave and invented language so we can communicate. But that's not the testimony of Scripture. God spoke the world into existence. In the beginning was the Word, and it wasn't till the sixth day that He created man. Right? So language predates mankind. There's a sanctity to language, to words. And when uh, Satan invented entirely new meaning. He was deconstructing the language. Maybe that's why Frederick Nietzsche said, I fear we're not getting rid of God because we still believe in grammar. See, Satan understands that if you can destroy language, you're well on your way to winning the battle. And so that's why we've evolved, or I should say devolved, even in the church to this reader response hermeneutic, you know, where you get to determine what the text means. And Bible study today in many churches resembles, uh, you know, people sitting in a circle with a facilitator. You don't have a teacher anymore because a teacher implies there's something to be taught. There's a place to land. There's a definitive authoritative answer. But so the facilitator reads a verse and then you go around the circle and everybody tells what it means to me. And then everybody applauds the creativity of these multiplicity of meanings. When, of course, in Scripture... The singularity of meaning is a fundamental principle of hermeneutics, of how to study the Bible. And uh, so, you know, where does meaning really reside? Does it reside with the words or with the listener or reader? You know, or somewhere in between. According to Scripture, meaning always resides with the original speaker. It has to. If you get to determine what I mean, communication is impossible right i mean think about how chaotic it would be you come up to up to me after the conference and you say man that was a great that was a great message jb 
And since I get to determine what you mean, I say, yes, I would love for you to buy me dinner at Susie's today. <laughs> How can you argue with that? You don't get to determine what you mean. I get to determine what you mean. I'm the listener. But no, authorial intent is, is what we're talking about here. So Satan says words really have no meaning. Forget what God said. I'll tell you what he meant. And then I'm going to restate what he said so that it, it's really clear for you. But it's not going to have anything to do with what he really said and certainly doesn't imply what he meant. So how do we stand against this spirit of, of pretense, this spirit of uh, deception? It, understands by under, it, it begins by understanding the anatomy of deception, by understanding Satan's MO, this idea of question truth, misrepresent truth, directly contradict it. And by the time you got there, yet there, Eve was so confused that she would have believed anything. Then you shift the focus quickly away from that before people figure out they've been hoodwinked. And you start making it about perception, and then you just make stuff up altogether. But God's Word gives us some other admonitions in the New Testament about dealing with deception. In the same chapter where John warns us the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Whether they, have God, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You know, it's, it's not just a good idea to study the topic of deception and be aware of all the lies around us. It's actually a command. Do not is a command. Do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits is a command. Test, the word test there is, is, a, is dokimatso. It's used 21 times in the New Testament. We see it in 1 Thessalonians 5, where we're told to wake up. Don't be asleep like the world, but wake up and be aware. And then it says, test all things. Ephesians 5, for you once were darkness, but now you're light in the world. So walk as children of life, finding out. That's the same word, dokimatso, that's translated test ever. That's really the remedy for deception is dig deeper, look closely. Don't just allow you to be yourself to be spoon-fed by the media, but look for answers. Find out what's really going on. Remember, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the world uh, in the flesh is of God. Do you think the Luciferians are confessing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world? You think they're confessing that He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that He's in control? that he's going to strike the nations with a rod of iron, that the governments are going to be upon his shoulder, that his anointed is going to take the throne, as David said in Psalm 2. God laughs when he sees Satan and his co-conspirators trying to take over the world. So the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work in the world, but the very next verse is an encouraging one, and that is, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. John goes on to say, they are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. Uh, if we know, that, we know that we are of God and the whole world, by contrast, lies under the sway of the wicked one. We are of God, he who knows God hears us, he who is not of God, does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So the way to distinguish truth from error is to compare it with God's word. Look closely. Don't take someone else's word for it. 
Don't let people put words in God's mouth. The way to distinguish truth from error is to compare it with what the Bible teaches. Well, before I close in prayer, I just want to mention, if you're here today, and I, I don't know you all, obviously we've had a wonderful weekend with you, we've gotten to know some of you, but I uh, always wonder if perhaps some people made their way here by God's providence, and you're here today, and you don't know the Lord Jesus. And if you don't, as we started out by talking about, it's a simple matter of childlike faith. It's not a matter of walking an aisle, signing a car, doing a dance, raising a hand, some kind of other action or deed. It's a simple, personal matter of faith. And even right now, as I'm speaking, where you're sitting, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, you can place your faith in Him. And in that instant, when faith meets the gospel, you become a believer. Abandoning your faith in anything and everything else you thought could save you, your own self-worth, your own good works, your own heritage, your own religion, your own baptism, whatever it might be, trusting solely in Jesus, the one who took your place on the cross and offers to you freely the gift of eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for just this wonderful weekend where we've looked at some heavy things, but also uh, been able to really look at uh, the truth of your word through scripture and see that a better day is coming. We know who wins in the end. And Lord, as we abide our time here, we just pray that you'd fill us with confidence, joy, and peace, and the realization that we're a child of the King. We need not cower in the face of anyone. And Lord, I do pray for those who may be listening to the sound of my voice that don't know you, that today would be the day of salvation, that today the Spirit of God would convict them of their sin and their need for a Savior, and that in simple faith they would trust in your Son and our Savior for eternal life. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.